A written transcript of this episode is provided by Starburst. For more information, you can see the show notes. Welcome to Data Mesh Radio with your host, Scott Herlman, sponsored by Starburst. This is Adrian Estala, VP of Data Mesh Consulting Services at Starburst and host of Data Mesh TV. Starburst is the leading sponsor for Trino, the open source project, and Jamak's Data Mesh book, delivering data-driven value at scale. To claim your free book, head over to starburst.io. Data Mesh Radio is provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It is produced and hosted by me, Scott Hurlman. I started this podcast as a place for practitioners to get useful information about Data Mesh, and we're at over 200 episodes. I've now left Data Stacks, you know, thanks for all their help in founding things, but I've left to start Data Mesh Understanding, which is also helping practitioners to get to the information needed to do Data Mesh well. We have free implementer introductions and roundtable programs, in addition to the more advanced yet affordable offerings. So please do get in touch if you're looking for more information on how to do, how to approach Data Mesh. Just check datameshunderstanding.com for more info. There's also a helpful organization of past Data Mesh radio episodes there if you want to dig into specific topics rather than digging through 200 different episodes. So with that, let's hit the funky intro music and listen to what you'll hear about in this interview episode. This episode is part of the Data Innovation Summit Takeover Week of Data Mesh Radio. The summit takes place May 5th and 6th in Stockholm. The Hyperite team, who is running the summit, is giving away an in-person and three online tickets, as well as providing a 20% discount code for Data Mesh Radio listeners. Please see the show notes for more details about how to enter to win tickets or for the discount code. Thanks. Hi, this is Fera from Data Innovation Summit. Join us on the largest and most influential annual enterprise data, analytics, and AI event in the world, bringing together the most innovative minds, enterprise practitioners, technology providers, startup innovators, and academics in one place to discuss ways to accelerate AI-driven transformation throughout companies, industries, and public organizations. With over 200 international speakers in this 7th edition, spread across 9 stages, 6 workshop rooms, 140 TIP sessions, and plenty of learning and networking activities in the exhibition area. The Data Innovation Summit is the place to be for all professionals and organizations working with utilization of data and AI innovation for enhancing customer experience, improve operational processes, enable future sustainability, reinventing business models or developing data-driven products and services. May 5th and 6th, all data, analytics and AI roads lead to Stockholm. See you there! Bottom line up front, what are you going to hear about and learn about in this episode? This is the last of the interviews for the Data Innovation Summit Takeover Week. I interviewed Henrik Gothberg, the founder and CEO 
the consulting company Daredux, the co-founder of the Airplane Alliance, and the chairman of the Data Innovation Summit itself. Let's start with some conclusions slash advice from Henrik. When working with other departments in data mesh or not, you need to start from respect, empathy, and understanding for people in different roles. You need to understand what those roles do and why they matter and what's challenging about them so that you don't just kind of write off those other people. You need to build those relationships to work together. When you think about maturing a domain or or a process in general, a big bang approach very rarely works. You need to think about evolution, not revolution. To find a good pathway to maturity, start with the domains already on the leading edge, trying to get the laggards to catch up instead of focusing on those who see value in maturity is going to lead to tears. Look for the innovators. Much like Sheetal Pratik recommended in episode 24, Start with less complicated and high-risk challenges so you can learn and develop the right muscles to do things easier in the future. Khan Chow talked about how they did that a lot uh, at Northern Trust as well. So I think this is becoming a, a pattern that I'm seeing over and over of don't try to go for something very complicated up front. Focus heavily on reuse, reusable data, yes, but also templates and other easy path type enabling things. Start with an initial domain, but move on to adding a second domain quickly if possible when you're doing data mesh. Templates will help you get to value quickly when you are moving into a new domain. It's okay to skip automating or building out a great solution for certain pieces of your data mesh implementation up front. What will get you in trouble is building half solutions that end up as major pain points. This is the biggest source of unintended tech debt. To succeed in data mesh, you need to get to a place where you have broad reusability. Reusable data, reusable processes, reusable templates, reusable tooling, etc. If your business people don't understand they own the processes and the data and the data, right? Focus on that and the data. Your data mesh implementation is much more likely to fail. So again, those were some conclusions that I took from what Henrik had had given in this episode. Some more background and other color. So Henrik started, he covered his journey from 2012 to present in most of the first 30 minutes of the interview. From joining a domain so he could add analytics capabilities to that domain, to building out a large data and analytics central team at the same company, to joining a new company in 2019 to help them implement a new data strategy, which has evolved into implementing a data mesh. Henrik joined uh, Vattenfall to build out the data and analytics team inside the sales organization. They had a multi-country domain with different maturity levels across each country. So each country would be a subdomain in a domain-driven design sense. They needed to improve the data and analytics capabilities and operations in all three countries so they could have strong data and analytics capabilities at the country and the broader European level. The team had some technical savvy, but they were struggling with actually getting the data. The data was locked into the source systems. 
it was difficult to even do basic customer analysis and data science, not to mention anything fancy. So again, this is a, 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 a story that many people have felt or are commonly hearing about. It's very difficult to get the data out of the source systems. In 2015, Henrik became the business intelligence officer at Vattenfall. That meant taking ownership of the centralized team with lots of core data and analysis responsibilities. A big part of the role was owning, providing costs in very granular ways, so they needed to try to move to a very standardized reporting model for the profit and loss statements. A big change that Henrik saw in that time was in customer maturity. When Henrik first started the BIO rule, people were mostly consuming reports. They moved more to consuming data sets and even raw data. As part of that, they the overall team often moved from ETL to ELT, which also caused some major headaches, as many have seen with implementing a data lake. So I think there's a lot to learn from, from kind of that experience as to it's good to go <laughs> towards the data sets and the more raw data, but ELT can get you into a lot of trouble. All of that background maturing the data and analytics capabilities ha- helped Henrik when he joined Sconia, a truck manufacturer in their financial services division. The culture of the company was already very decentralized and modular, which can set up well for data mesh, but that also meant domains were very independent with limited standards or standardization around data enterprise-wide. So it wasn't really in the company culture to think about how does this impact the broader company. There weren't those kind of standardized interfaces for good data interface interconnection between interoperability between the domains. They had a big data lake implementation with a good raw data layer and a semantic layer, but the analytics layer on top of that was lacking. The centralized team was struggling to even manage the raw data layer from a governance perspective. And that centralized team was feeling very increasing strain from issues of trying to manage the data pipelines to get the data into that data lake. Henrik mentioned the necessary evolution process for domains. A big bang approach very rarely works. And Henrik started with the domains in the innovator category as they were the most bought in on the concept of domain maturity. And it was just easier to kind of push them forward rather than try and bring the laggards up to speed. As part of this process, they were able to decommission many large data warehouses. To start, Henrik focused on what was valuable to build for the domain at that micro level, instead of valuable to the greater organization. Again, that kind of starting at what's going to be valuable for the domain instead of let's build out this large implementation, let's build out all of our standards up front, things like that. That way, he could mature that domain much faster. And if you get to a place where there are multiple mature domains, those domains are better prepared to work with each other. There was a focus on building reuse wherever possible, not just reusable data, but what templates and and other quote unquote easy path things could the team create. After year one of focusing on creating value kind of at the data product level individually, 
Henrik and, and Scania started to focus more on creating value at the overall mesh level. This is where data product interoperability really can come into play or that mesh experience playing a lot of those things. Before you get going on a data mesh journey, Henrik recommends spending the time to really plan out how you think your implementation will work and how it will create value for the organization and what will be the near-term value adders and what will be the long-term value adders. I think this is coming up quite a bit of you want to set your, your kind of North Star for where you're going to go with your, your data mesh implementations. And that, that North Star really shouldn't change, but kind of your general plans definitely will along the way. And it's totally fine that those change. You have to actually be flexible to those changes. Henrik strongly believes in either taking challenges on with the intention to get to a good solution now or not tackling that challenge at all. The half-assed solutions just lead to far more pain. So either commit to take it on now or leave it entirely for later. Another piece of advice is to not have the domain teams just hire without consulting the central team, especially if there is a central team around that competency. Daniel Engberg in his episode mentioned something similar. Look instead to embed people from that central team into your domains so that the central team can understand the friction points and build out templates to address that friction again so future domains don't have to to run into that same friction. For Henrik, it's key to find the right people in each domain who can be a quote-unquote sensible buyer. There needs to be a high level of trust between the business and IT, so you need someone who can develop a strong relationship with IT. This might not be as relevant for a lot of the companies that are moving away from the IT model, the centralized IT model, but especially as you're starting out, it's really, really important to kind of align your technical people and your business people and finding somebody who can really bridge that gap well is important. For Henrik, you need to start from respect, empathy, and understanding for people in different roles in order to actually form a strong relationship. Business people often think it's not that hard to set up your data and analytics processes well. You should focus on investing time and energy with the key players to develop a good relationship, whatever role you're in. That way, it is much easier to get to each other's context because with that context, you can move forward together. Henrik wrapped up talking about to succeed in data mesh, you need to get to a place where you can have broad reusability. Reusable data, yes, but reusable processes, templates, tooling, etc. He also believes that domains, especially the business people inside the domains, need to understand they own the business processes and the data. That and again is quite important. So with that, let's go ahead and get to the episode. Okay, enough of just me. Let's hear from our awesome guest in this interview episode.
Very excited for this episode here today. I've got Henrik Gothberg here, who is the founder and CEO at Dareducks, the co-founder of Airplane Alliance. And then specifically for this conversation, he's the chairman of the Data Innovation Summit. So he's uh, one of the core <laughs> driving factors behind uh, exactly what we're doing the Takeover Week about. And I had asked uh, Henrik to be on for um, to talk about a number of different things around data mesh, and he's coming to it from a pretty interesting angle. And he's going to give a little bit about his background here in a second. But we're going to talk about kind of how you think about domains and how you think about maturing domains and that kind of one one on one, like maturing that specific domains, but also maturing it in the broader you know, organizational sense as well. And then we're going to kind of come off of that and, and talk about some other things that, that can happen once you are mature, but you kind of have to get there before before you can really uh, head down that path. So uh, before we jump into that, Henrik, if you wouldn't mind giving people a little bit of a background on yourself and kind of what, what you've done, especially on the domain side, and, and that can transition well into the conversation. Thanks, Scott, for that introduction. I will do my best to live up with it. Well, um, the way I would like to frame uh, who I am and, and my context is that uh, I'm, I'm a business person at heart. And, and, and I have a background where I really went uh, deeper into the realm of data and analytics and AI when I joined uh, Vattenfall. Vattenfall is a large uh, uh, European utility and I joined there in 2012 uh, in relation to build up the data and analytics uh, capabilities within the B2B sales area on a European scale. Uh, so basically, my experience around this starts with you know how how we looked at do the domain perspective and how we built quite techy you know data and analytics capabilities in the business in 2012. And then I've had the fortune to do that journey a couple of times. And during that journey now, a lot of ideas has evolved. And also here, somewhere around 2018, we, we start talking and framing a new lingo around this with, with Data Mesh. So in a nutshell, uh, working in different roles throughout my career, uh, if I take now this starting point, 2012, um, around... Um, business intelligence and lead development. So, you know, how do we drive uh, sales in a B2B context? Moving on to working in data and analytics transformation roles uh, on group level in, 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 the, in the energy space. And then basically starting uh, Daredux in 2019, very much colored by the experiences that I had at Vattenfall and basically trying to understand you know, what is consulting all about in, in this new context and, and what is, you know, the future around how we need to organize and work and steer and, and set things up, you know, when everything is, is under more and more innovation pressure when it comes to data and, and AI. So maybe that, that is a short background, uh, but I, I'd be happy to explore a couple of key pivotal moments, actually, that can lead us into this conversation in a nice way, if, if you like that, Scott. Yeah, I think especially when you talk about building up a capability internally and talking about kind of maturing a domain so they are ready for things like this, right? Um, you know, one thing that we had talked about uh, offline was that not everybody is going to be ready for data mesh, no matter, you know, it's it, you have to 
set yourself up to succeed. So I think talking about your history of what you did there and, and how we can look at taking learnings from that and how other people can apply that so that you can be ready, right? That it's not it's not a zero or a one. It's not that you've got a, a domain that's immature and and you know you put together your plan and the next day it's mature. It's like how, what do you have to go through? How do you set yourself up? And then how do you think about maturing not just that singular domain, but how do you think about kind of repeatability and and maturing together? You know, I, I think about this when people talk about successful like marriages and relationships and things like that. That it's not at all about staying the same. It's about maturing together. So I think that's kind of the same way that organizations have to approach things. So uh, with, with that kind of as, as a lot of backdrop, we'd, we'd love to hear kind of what what was happening with you, especially kind of coming in in, in 2012 and, and how you worked through that and what you've seen and, and what you're working with your clients now at, at Daredocs as well. I mean, like, so so maybe now let, let us ex- explore uh, three uh, uh, journeys. One was to set up a, a, a data analytics team within sales and marketing analytics for B2B energy. One was to set up a central team around our ERP data and our you know, finance data to serve data and, and analytics and reporting from, from, from group level uh, and, and work more on enterprise scale in Vattenfall. And and how we did that, and then we are moving into what where I've been in Scania for the last three years as an interim manager in um, uh, from Daredax, where we truly have have taken this the next step, and where we now um, entered into uh, data mesh. So maybe that is a way to understand, you know, what has been the domain journey. And how far have we come now when we have done it in Scania? You know, and how have, you know, what's the difference now in Scania compared to those, you know, one journey in 2012 to 2015, one journey in 2015 to 2019, and now the last journey from 2019 to 2022. So if, if, if I look at these three journeys, so the first one, the scenario is that we have a European B2B setup and we have different levels of maturity in the different countries where we were working with B2B. So Vattenfall's core markets was Sweden, it was uh, Netherlands and Germany. And actually it's based on acquisitions of different companies, a new one in, in, in Netherlands and, and you know, other companies in, in Germany. So, th- so there was a clarity that the most mature organization around analytics when I joined in 2012 was in in uh, uh, new one, uh, uh, you know, in the Netherlands part of the business. So here we have now the challenge of how do I build a domain that is now cross-country? The core questions are the same. The, you know, we want to do churn analytics. We want to do uh, campaign selections. We want to do, uh, po- uh, you know, potential of new customer prospect, finding the, the, the twins for the best prospects, stuff like this. But of course, vastly different uh, data environments in the large enterprise with huge legacy in terms of legacy data. Now, here, here we have a situation where we were learning, we, we were sort of relying on IT to get the stuff up for us. And then from here on, we could sort of do the wrangling that gets, got us to analytics, that got, got us to campaign selections or whatever we did. 
So I think a very common approach where we basically now, the main difference here that we were actually quite technically savvy in terms of doing hardcore data wrangling and analytics. But we were kind of, you know, the data, you know, we were having a, a massive struggle to get hold of the data and get, you know, get the data organized in our database. But you could already see already here now in 2012, I needed to build the, the contextual data sets for the purpose of, of these teams. And it's not the same as an enterprise data warehouse that you use for, you know, your finance and reporting. It needs to be customer analytical records, we call it. So basically, how do I organize a lot of data so I, I have a, a, a very good starting point to do any kinds of analytics uh, around my B2B customer profitability and stuff like that? I'll take a step back. Like one of the most pivotal learnings and I had in this first uh, iteration of building a domain team was, uh, first of all, in 2012, our data was very much locked in in, a, in its different source systems. So I, I remember propagating or you know pitching to IT and to my CIO at that point in time. We need to have some sort of I, I call it at this point in time technology for data assembly. Okay, so data warehousing of course exists, but we didn't want to do data warehousing for reporting purposes. We wanted to have custom analytical records. That we where we could be uh, we could be do CLV analysis we could do sort of regression analysis and all that so a little bit more advanced towards uh, you know uh, data science or advanced analytics not super fancy but clearly we needed to have our domain data sets in order to build our domain analytical products or and our analytical products was not defined as products but you know what. To do churn analysis, we did that on a repetitive basis. To do campaign selections, we needed to do that all the time, right? So when we do marketing campaign selections, we, we needed to think, how do we do that so we can do multiple campaigns over time? So in this sense, how do we productify, how do we build a service for campaign selection? In the sense here now, I then had, had to build up a team of, of a, a, you know, data wranglers or data scientists. We didn't call each other data scientists. I, I can't remember what, what term we used. I think it was BI analyst or customer intelligence uh, analyst, stuff like this. Uh, but essentially building up a team in, in Germany, building up a team in in um, in uh, Netherlands and one in Sweden. And, and the core challenge was, of course, that the since we were not coming from the same company, the stacks had not really yet, uh, they were not harmonized. So we needed to find our ways within our domain. We even needed to look at the, the domain from a country perspective. You know, how do I build my data sets in, in Germany? And then on top of that then, how do I now serve uh, uh, the European view on this? So very much of the operational stuff was quite local, but then we needed to understand this on a European scale comes the next problem. So, so the, this is sort of the, the first sort of experiences around, you know, how siloed the data are and how focused you need to be in your, on your core data sets locally and then how you on top of that needs to work on, on different things. And, and I remember one of the most interesting, simple questions I got was from my CEO for the B2B uh, business area. He wanted us to do a, a, a profitability 
pyramid. Which ones are our most profitable customers down to you know our least profitable customers? And basically not looking at only gross margin, but looking at proper uh, activity-based costing, like going to what from gross margin level one to gross margin level four. And all of a sudden now, you know, you need to collect the data from the operational processes. You need to collect data from the finance systems in terms of, you know, how much money have you made. And you need to collect and combine uh, that data in different ways. And and basically, it was more or less impossible to do in, in, in a really uh, uh, industrialized way. Um, so moving on from here, I got the job to drive, you know, based on my work building up this domain, I, I took I, I took up a role uh, in in the on group level. This is in 2015, so this is sort of doing my internal career in Vattenfall. And the role definition in Vattenfall terminology was the BIO, so business information officer, which essentially means you you're the business counterpart to IT. So so the steering we had in Vattenfall was that the BIO had the IT budget both the project spend and the run spend and basically had the demand and we're now pushing the demand and framing what we should build. And then, you know, IT supply led by our CIO should deliver on that. So I'm now I'm sitting right in this interface between business and IT and how the governance worked around that. Now, the tricky point with this role was that I, I, I took on a BIO function for something that didn't exist. So we... I was now working in, in support functions and I, and I took on the BIO role for some key uh, core processes within Vattenfall. So in, in finance, record to report, in uh, plan to perform, we called it, uh, treasury, uh, procurement. So fairly big functions within Vattenfall that we're now trying to uh, you know, groom to basically be under uh, under one BIO heading. So, I, so here we now have the whole challenge of sort of much more data on the same hand on the one hand side and ultimately being on a group level in this support function within within our governance and setup we were now the data owners and the system owners of some of the core data and finance data and stuff like that that everybody else in the organization wanted from us so if you can imagine Every single process in a company wants to understand their cost in relation to whatever operation process they're doing. So you want to understand the cost of sales. You want to understand the cost of running a wind park. You want to understand the cost of your nuclear power plant, etc., etc. So here we are now in, in a position where we are sort of now responsible not only for these systems, but to become data providers to the rest of, of a large, huge enterprise when it comes to a specific type of data, cost data, finance data. So he, all of a sudden now, in order to work with that, there was, you know, one part was the data part. The other part was sort of, I inherited uh, the whole ERP landscape. It, it's a cr- absolutely crazy experience because, you know, all of a sudden now, you know, where do we put the system ownership for the ERP landscape in Vattenfall? You know, we have our we have our finance uh, uh, part of SAP. We have our supply chain. We have our procurement. So, so where do we put the SLA for the for our, our SAP environment? And basically, we said, oh, we need to federate this and drive this from group level. But of course, 
I was now, my real process ownership in relation to ERP was for record to report, accounting, you know, you know, and all that, all the way, you know, to plan to perform budgeting and all, all that kind of stuff. Whilst, of course, in SAP, you had modules that were really, you know, towards the core domains of the business. So, like, you have a procurement module, you have, like, like a supply chain model, module. So, wh- how should I now set up a governance of our ERP landscape where basically not one part of the organization can sort of own all the different domain perspectives. So I've now got, you know, a crash course in federation. You know, how do I drive something as a business function with my other peers in the business? Because the whole steering was that the business should tell IT what to build and what to work on. So here now we, we, we had to set up uh, the federation around our ERP systems and we had to set up our ERP uh, federation around how do we grow our you know, reporting uh, data landscape and stuff like that. And here now we are coming closer to data products because what happened was now when I was now sitting now on group level and I was then responsible very, very clearly for one simple data product. Not so simple, but we wanted to standardize how I did how we did BI sales service around uh, PNL, profit and loss. So you know, imagine everybody's doing your profit and loss, uh, you know, your group reporting, your management reporting, and here now we wanted to say like these types of reports they are owned and maintained by group, and then beyond that, you know, if you need to do more you know, local uh, reporting, be, be our guest, but that's the delta. So here we go from group standard reports, then we go to uh, business area standard report, and then we go to business units. So we are working kind of, you know, trying to clean up, you know, a lot of Excel, a lot of ClickSense, ClickView, you know, Cognos, and we are trying to standardize this, and we are trying to move at this point in time from you know traditional push-out reporting to self-service drill down. So here, all of a sudden, the two simple data products we built was you know the the, the semantic layer and the cubes in order to drive PNL self-service uh, analysis and reporting, and on the other one, uh, capex uh, project-oriented. So basically. One is looking at the 12 months periodical horizons and analytics from this perspective. And then one is looking at analytics and reporting from a, a large investment uh, capex point of view. So, so imagine we are looking at our, our, our financials periodically 12 months. This is one angle. The other angle, like if you build a new clear power plant, you have a horizon of 15, 20 years. So now you want to follow up the, the, the you know the costs and the performance around in, in relation to project. So it's two big sort of um, self-service BI products was what we uh, uh, what we started with. Then when we matured, more and more people wanted to consume not only the report from us, but they wanted to uh, uh, consume data sets. And then in the end, they actually wanted to consume very very much raw data. And I, and I remember very vividly in one key aha moment here was when the whole business area wind, they build wind parks. They came to me and said, could I have all the wind data from the ERP in order for, for, to drive our predictive maintenance? 
I want the raw data that I can find the ERP, but I don't want to have like a specific table. I, I'm flipping the whole conversation. Give me everything that is wind related. And we never done an ETL like that before. You know, we didn't have ETLs that were, that were fitting that problem. So all of a sudden now we, we are starting to think about ELT. We are starting to think about ourselves and understand ourselves. And I, I, I pushed this mission. We are a raw data provider. We are a data set provider. And we are a reporting self-service provider. So, so here you can imagine now, we, have, we didn't have the vocabulary around data products and, and, and um and uh, data mesh, but we did have the core vocabulary around reusable data sets. And we talked about at this point in time, and this is quite fun, we talked about raw data assets, we talked about flow data assets, and we talked about consumption analytical data assets. So literally, if you if you, if you contrast that with, with data mesh, that would be uh, your source data product, versus your intermediary or consumption type data products uh, as such. So, so all that is sort of leading up to basically, you know, what, what we learned around this is basically my second job was basically asking the core question, how do we do data at enterprise scale? When I was in my first job, how do I do data from a domain perspective? How do I fight to get my domain data to, to get going. I don't really care about the whole company. And in my other role, I was sitting on the cost data that everybody wanted. And how do we now drive data sharing and report sharing at, at enterprise scale? You know, so those two things has really shaped a lot of my thinkings. And then it, then when then in the end now, I joined um, uh, at, with Daredax as an interim manager in 2019. I joined Scania. And now I joined Scania in a, in a, in what is the the bank inside Scania? So in Scania, I've been working with our loan, leasing, and insurance business. So if you can imagine, we you know Scania is a truck and bus, an engine manufacturer, and this is our core business. But of course, we do loan and leasing and insurance in relation to fleets of trucks. Now, so this is this is like an appendix. So this is a business on its own, and it, it basically it's a financially regulated business, and it, it basically allows you to lend money, you know, uh, in relation to you know ten trucks. Now here we have now a situation where that technology landscape or data landscape and IT landscape is quite separate from what is your systems you need to build. Uh, to do R&D of trucks, your systems you need to manufacture trucks, your system for the supply chain of trucks, and your systems to sell trucks. You know, this is this is big Scania, and here we have the bank of Scania. And here all of a sudden now, we need to get a much stronger grip on, on our financial services domain. So here I, I was uh, came into that when Helena Hörnebrandt uh, took on the job as the uh, global uh, COO and, and head of transformation, and basically working on a digital repositioning of the bank. And we're coming now with it from a legacy where we have been extremely decentralized and distributed with, with basically loan and leasing systems locally in, in all the different uh, uh, you know business units. And, and to give you a number, we are talking. We, we, we now have business, finance business, like more than 50 markets, closer to 60. 
those 60 markets are organized in, you know, 20 business units that are organized in seven regions, you know, and here we have now a, a different ball game. How do we start doing big data and economies, you know, working smarter with data when we are completely fragmented, you know, and how do we now go to a point where we start thinking platform around this, but the culture and the, and the steering and the success of Scania has always been very modular, has always been very decentralized. So, so you know, to do a big monolithic push, you know, would never work. And, and this story very, is very exciting now because here we are now starting to push quite hard in the bank. And I am now building up very strong relationships with uh, Scania IT and the functions within Scania IT that is working on, on the big data platforms, the BI platforms, the reporting platforms and stuff like that. And this has been my main focus. And here we have a situation that Scania is coming quite, they've been quite early in, in the Hadoop stack. 2015, 16, they started to build their on-prem uh, data lake. And it, you know, slowly in the beginning, but completely exploding in terms of, you know, using it. Um, and where you have a central data lake team that really can't catch up. Uh, catch up. So we have had some sort of steering where, where the central team has really purposeful managed the lower levels of the data lake, but quite wild in terms of how we have let the different data scientist teams build their sort of assets on top of here. Um, while it's the wrong word, quite decentralized or, or, or quite, um, yeah. So, so in a nutshell, that leads to a fairly good, you know, raw layer in the lake, uh, fairly good normalization layer in the lake, and then very much orphan analytics on top of that for different data pipelines or different purposes, which really hard to reuse, uh, so to speak. And the conversation here was basically, at the same time as we've been, you know, in on-prem data lake, we, we have actually been a very long time in AWS, working basically uh, with microservices and connected services around the track. So we've had a lot of data around the track that we very, very early started to sort of have sensors and, and you, know, you know, sending data, uh, the data was communicating, uh, you know, uh, the, the trucks are communicating the whole time, right? Um, and it's been that we have done for more than 10 years, which meant we have a fairly um, fairly mat high maturity on microservices. And we have a fairly high maturity on, you know, how we have worked in AWS at the same time. So here was the topic now. I was in the on-prem data lake when we did the re digital repositioning. I, I saw like I will not be able to serve globally all the markets, it, the, you know, the, the bandwidth, the performance, the, you know, the, the lagging, all that kind of stuff. We need to now start pushing into, uh, into uh, the, the cloud view also when it comes to big data and analytics. And now the conversation comes, I really want to get this down from my domain. And we had a very, very, very simple and very clear discussion with Scony IT that there's no way that they can sort of, from the central team, manage all these different data pipelines, number one. And number two, them only managing sort of the raw layer, but nothing else. And then, you know, not really having the governance around that, that didn't work either. So we basically then started to look at, you know, how do we build more modular? And, and this is a long story, but I think it's a very important story because 
Scania, this is a very interesting topic around maturity around data mesh. Scania has a, has, has a history of being world-class, absolute world-class when it comes to modularization of how we build trucks. So they, they really rethought the process of how you build a truck. So basically you, you can have an autonomous engine team from R&D to production. And then you have an autonomous chassis team, an autonomous cab team. Basically, what that allows you to do is to basically have an R&D cycle and push new, new you know, engines out. Irregardless of what's the sort of life cycle of the, the other part of the truck. And this is one dimension. The other dimension is that when you build a Scania truck, you actually go and click and configure and you modularize. It's like Lego, right? When you when you order a Scania truck, it's like Lego. It's super cool. Uh, you know, so so that thinking around modularization has sort of draw, driven a lot of experience. What does it mean to federate between different domains for the hardware, for the truck? So, we, so for us in Scania, when we started to get the, uh, these principles, it's like, well, it, it really fits the culture of Scania and it really fits what we've been doing uh, hardware-wise with our truck. How can we become, how can we be closer to that uh, when it comes to data and when it comes to algorithms and when it comes to IT? So, I mean, like, that's a long story here, but I mean, like, that's, that's an evolution around domain-driven and where sort of Scania, I think, is in an absolute sweet spot for, for data mesh. The challenge now is to, you know, the people who understand modularization in the truck, they don't have necessarily all the data literacy. And the people in IT, they don't really have the modularization experience in the same way because they, they, they you know, they're IT. They haven't been working in R&D, uh, you know, where, where this is taking place in Scania. But it's very interesting anyway. Yeah. So, so I mean, you touched on a, a lot of different things there, but I think the the one of the things that, that would be very helpful for folks is to understand how you you start to look at a, uh, a domain that may not be mature and you think about so there, there's this thing that I've talked about within even like maximizing value at the data product level and there's the micro and the macro right the micro is the data product itself the macro is the overall value of the mesh right the at, when you first start out each data product itself is kind of it has most of the value within the data product itself rather than its interoperability across the mesh and, and its sense within that greater mesh level. But as you add more and more data products, it's more about the, the value at the, the full uh, data mesh level. So thinking about that from a domain maturity model, like do you, it sounds like you, you are recommending that, that you kind of go more towards the one by one by one domain maturity and that, that you kind of get your feet under you and you get that process going rather than um, trying to all mature <laughs> uh, significantly at the same time, because that's, that's one of those kind of chaos type of, of things of everybody, we're going to change the way we do everything all at once. And everybody's now moving forward at lightning speed. And it just, you know, like team topologies talks about bringing in a team to, to help 
smooth those through and you don't have 50 of those teams that are all going into every team to, to try and do that. So how, how do you think about, you know, the steps of maturing a domain, but also like, how do you mature a domain and, and how do you drive that towards maturing the organization? I mean, like the, 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 there are many different, uh, let, let's unpack this a little bit. I, I think it's an awesome question. I mean, like, first of all, you know, to go big bang or could go in another way. I mean, like, there, there's a lot of things that points uh, to, to go more sequential in this. Uh, uh, first of all, I think if you're in a large enough enterprise like Scania, I think it's a microcosmos of society. You have your early innovators, your early adopters, your, uh, your early majority, late majority, your laggards. So basically there will be a spectrum of maturity in any large enough organization, okay? So this is number one to consider. Uh, number two to consider, I think, is what type of leadership or st- management and mandates do you have? What, what's the fundamental culture of, of your organization? Is this a very much top-down steered type organization where, where we can really you know, centrally push things out or are we dealing with a, a much more decentralized type of leadership uh, and, and culture? And both Vattenfall and Scania are, I think, to some degree at the extreme end of decentralization, and it, and it serves them well. If I take Vattenfall as an example, uh, you, if you, you need to, you know, you're one-on-one in energy value chain and what an, a full-scale utility is doing, they really have separate PLs as a starting point you know you, you have you have someone producing energy you have someone trading energy you have someone else building wind parks you have someone else taking care of a network and you have someone retailing and selling stuff so so essentially they are their own PLs they are literally companies within the company so it's very so even when we started our big data journey what I was talking about um, before, from the get-go, when we went to Azure, even if we have one Azure domain, logically we needed, we had to sort out these different major big domains. Just looking at the value chain, and in in energy, it's even more clear because you have the concept of unbundling. That's the that's the, that you know the, the person you know you have a network bill at home, so you have it. There's a monopoly who has the network where you live or where your factory is. And then you have the retail bill. So basically unbundling means by law and regulation, the per, the company that owns the network should not have a competitive advantage in, in relation to retail. You know, they shouldn't be able to um, take benefit of their monopoly in the network. So here we have by law that we need to think in different domains. So even if we do a large, you know, data warehouse, we still need to steer the data on access security role level in order to understand who should be able to watch that rich data and who should be able to use what data for, for, for you know. So this is one angle, decentralized. And then if I go to Scania, I think it's the same here. You know, the, the modularization of the truck drives autonomy. And also the way we have been very, very successful in understanding the market and how we sell is very much high level of autonomy to the market units and business units to, to you know and a trust to win business. Now those kind of things 
they kind of drive you to a point of view that what gives you a perfect opportunity for data mesh in terms of modularization and decentralization and domains is also its worst enemy because everybody wants to do their own thing. Yeah. You know, so so here is a little bit like if if I if I put those two together, you know, you know, the 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 early adapters versus the late majority and crossing the chasm, and I take the whole story around, you know, the culture, both for energy or Vattenfall, and and you know, it makes sense that you start you st- start with your innovators, the ones who are ready to go, and it makes sense that you start unpacking the value that you want to create um, in that in that position. Then there's a third dimension, which makes if if I simply follow the data, I, I had the fortune to learn a lot from decommissioning several large data warehouses um, over time really large ones and then the, the, then someone can go say oh why, why don't you simply migrate this warehouse into the new technology and we are done with it and of course i can take a rat's nest you know <laughs> that's been built for 10 years and then move that over and have a rat's nest in my new beautiful technology or i try to untangle what are these reports used for who's the data owner who's the report owner and all of a sudden now when you're going to broad the data context fundamentally explodes. You know, so imagine, you know, I, I want to do data product mapping. Okay, I mean, I, I have enough headaches to really figure that out, what is a smart a view of data products within the finance domain. So imagine you have a team that is supposed to do this data mapping for fundamentally different types of businesses at the same time. Not a problem if you're 100 people doing it. Literally. But, you know, we, I never worked with that kind of scale that I could take that on. So it's, it's also about why don't we focus our attention and not trying to multitask, but really get to value faster to prove something by putting a lot of effort and attention to get, get it right. So to getting something right 360 degrees, you know, the organization, the value, the algorithm, the data, the usage, you know, it's it, it's so much work. You know, not only data engineering work I'm talking about here. I'm talking about from uh, data to value, the hardcore operational bottom line value. So if you want to get to that value, you, you kind of need to. I think that also speaks for doing one domain at a time. Yeah. So so there's a lot of things that you said in there that I think are worthy of of even just kind of briefly covering. One one I think is in a very centralized team, we kind of have to think about splitting the domains off much like you would from a monolith, right? When you think about microservices, it's not that you take a hammer to your your whatever you want to talk about, you know, like a rock or whatever, and you smash it and it goes into a hundred different pieces and you've got your microservices. You're peeling out your microservices one at a time. In a decentralized state, exactly what you talked about. Everything kind of has autonomy. And so I think um, Samia Rahman talked a lot about interoperability. You can find that interoperability and iterate towards more global interoperability, but you don't have to start with, and this is our interoperability standard. All of these these. Uh, you know, decentralized organizations that are very used to decentralization now have to 
um, adhere to these things and, and exactly what you talked about, somebody trying to actually create that. It's an impossible job. It's 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 not worth it. And so I, I do like the idea as well. So Sheetal Pratik had talked in hers uh, episode about kind of the same thing about getting it right and and developing your muscle, right? That that you develop your learnings from working with the people who are capable and are willing, right? That you don't try to go to the, this domain is going to have the most value if we do it, but they're going to fight tooth and nail. And so it's going to be hard, hard, hard. Like Scott Hawkins in his episode mentioned this as well of, it's okay when you're the centralized domain team or the centralized kind of data mesh enablement team to tap out and say, we just can't work with these people, right? Like they're, they're not ready for it or they're just too obstinate or, or whatever and that, that it's okay to do that. So I think those, those are all really interesting points. And I think that decentralization, a lot of what a lot of people are talking about is that point-to-point value integration, right? Like the data mesh and the long-term, the five, 10-year-out vision is we have all of these data products and there's interoperability and you're able to do that. But getting domains to a place where they they really understand their data and that they can use it themselves, not, you know, yes, we want them serving it out so other people can use it, but we also want them to be better with their own data. <laughs> and so we, we help them pay off their work in that way. So I think you, you, you talked a lot about a lot of those different things that make a lot of those. But, but, but let, me, let me add another angle that you actually brought up. When we are talking about the micro perspective versus the macro perspective of the data mesh, we can, if you zoom out a little bit, you can, you can understand then what is the micro perspective of value that I need for one domain team? Okay, and you know, and and what are the capabilities and what part of the data mesh do I need to build in order to get to the micro value? What is that all about? Now, if if I imagine this, that like I can have fairly good value simply with one domain, because if I start to really structure my engineering team, who is working, we call it in Scania now, on the assembly line versus who is working on the factory, who's working on the platform versus the actual data, you know, data product level. You know, we can start going for the values that create speed for the one team. And here, here is very simple, right? The one team, we really want to deal with the core business problem. We don't want to deal with infrastructure as code. We don't want to deal with CI, CD. We don't want to deal with, with, with sort of a, a data cap, you know, all that stuff. So, only having one team, you need to you need to build up some parts of the mesh. I mean, like let's think about it. It's, it's the data product itself. What's the standards around this? How can I harvest uh, whatever we have built for one domain team into a template that puts us in it in a, in a position when the next team comes, we can provide even more value. So the, the the first team, you know, takes a lot of pain, right? Because there is no templates, there is no CI/CD, there is nothing maybe. The second team has a lot of value from what the first team did. Okay, we, you know, you want you want a reporting type data product. That's awesome. The first team also wanted a reporting data product, and we have now created infrastructure code. This template we have put it in in our GitLab repository as a framework in our libraries, so I can now push a button 
and I can spin up the infrastructure for you to start going on content level immediately. Okay, so here we're talking about value from data mesh that has very much to do with the micro point of view, you know, one domain and another domain. Now we come to the macro perspective. Okay, I want to facilitate data sharing at zero marginal cost. Okay, all of a sudden now, other capabilities needs to come into play. You know, how do I find, how do I search, you know, someone else's uh, data? H how do I understand it? How do I connect to it? You know, blah, 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 right? And here you can argue, okay, when we only have two teams, I can come a long way just by my federation on building a community with the two data product owners in two different domains talk to each other. And they can sort a lot of things out and we can, you know what, we can cheat a little bit here and we can basically get the help from the infra guys to, to connect to our data. When I have five different domains, now we need to more technically automate the search, connect. We need to have a mesh supervision. So you can kind of understand that, well, I can focus on year one in my data mesh roadmap on the micro level really hard to not having such a huge overhead for the, you know, to get to the, the first data pipeline, data products. And then as we mature, you know, the second team gets that value because we are reusing and harvesting that part. But as we grow with more domains, now the whole, how do I find my data? How do I share my data? How do I connect my data automatically or without interfering and in using the central team, the real mesh experience, the real, real mesh experience, when you basically don't need to go all the way down, you know, you don't need to do that. If you only have two teams, it's okay to do that. If you have data in five different teams and this team wants the central guys to go, you know, we don't want that. But, you know, if so, you can really start taking a step back and say, what's the value uh, from data mesh concept that is really useful for one domain? What's the value that is useful for two domains? What's the value useful when you have 10 domains? You know, and, and in this way, I think you can think carefully around also why it makes sense to start, you know, with, you know, ideally you may you might want to start with one domain and then very fast go for the second domain. So you can you can show the the you can you can wish you know you can give a tangible experience how it is supposed to work. You know, look, these have they have that data, they have that data, and now they built this one, combining this to in, in, into this uh, this data product. You know, so in order to really prove what a data mesh is all about, you, you need to get to two domains, in my opinion, quite fast. But but those two domains can all that we want to focus on is really the micro level value. You know, how do we how do we do the templates? You know, how how do we make sure that we sort of uh, can spin up things? How do we get access to the data? The macro level of the data mesh, or data mesh supervision, uh, a data product marketplace, uh, all that kind of stuff, uh, our data product catalog, whatever you want to call that. Those things, they become really, really useful when you started to grow a bit. So I think that tells you a lot, you know, where, where should you put your efforts, in my opinion. And how do you think about kind of, the we talked a little bit about the shortcuts you can take or where where can you kind of push stuff off further 
how do you think about not locking yourself in, right? It's fine to say, we're going to do this later, but you create tech debt. And and I can't remember who exactly uh, mentioned it, but they talked about um, what we've done in data historically is to take on tech debt without the intentionality around saying we are taking on tech debt. And I think you need to, to really, really think about why you're doing things when it comes to data mesh. But like, how do you think about that choice of, hey, we are going to push this to later. And so we understand that our data discovery, you know, is not going to be all that great. And it's going to be one-on-one conversations. And um, I know everybody's trying to fully automate everything data discovery. And I think you just need humans in the loop. I think the more that, that I hear from people trying to automate everything relative to data discovery, but that's not the point. But the, the point is like, how do you make those calls? How do you make those calls as to we're taking this on and it's temporary pain, it's temporary uh, tech debt, and we're going to solve it in the end? And, and how do you prevent yourself from, you know, a, a kind of big flaw in your overall approach um, that it's going to be very, very hard to address later down the road? That's a good question. I mean, like, I, I'm not sure I have the perfect answer, but I can answer what I truly believe in and what I'm striving for. And then reality hits and you need to be pragmatic sometimes. So, so, but, but in, 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 in reality, to some degree, and, and this is hard, right? Because in the beginning, you kind of need to get to fairly concrete view of what you, how you think it's going to work. And so, and maybe that's one of the challenges now that, there, there, there are a lot of conceptual topics going on on LinkedIn, and we are talking about it. But you know, to 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 translate that down to okay, how do I really think about coding this technology? Okay, so this is one hurdle that you you kind of need to be a little bit like you you have to have done your thinking quite deep around this because when you have done that, and then you overlay it with what I said before, what is really useful now. And what is useful later, I think the way to avoid, you know, the, the problem that I see uh, in, in relation to tech depth in large enterprises, I don't see a problem when you completely skip to do something, everybody is okay with it, and we have a manual workaround, or we have a human workaround. Then we all know this feature doesn't exist, so we need to, we are managing this in another way, Okay. The problem becomes when you do a half-ass cheat solution somewhere, uh, and you will, this is just an interim. I'm going to do an interim integration point-to-point point between these two systems. We all know it's shit. We did it because we had to do it, we thought. And then 10 years later, that interim solution is the way we do things. Okay? So what I'm saying is it's almost a little bit like my philosophy here, either do it right because now is the time to do it or basically dare to say we're not going to do that and what's going to be the alternative solution. And and in, in the enterprise setting, why it's very tricky to go too far out on this pragmatic interim solution idea is that you will always have comp- new agendas. 
you know, there are always new things coming in from someone else that is more important. So it, it kind of always becomes a priority. Should we fix this half-ass solution or should we let it go? Now, if you don't have a solution, it's manual, then it, then it stays manual or you do it properly. But you don't end up in this sort of la-la land in between nothing where, where it just gets technical depth. So, so the philosophy here is to really understand, you know what, when it comes to these things, we shouldn't cheat. Now, how do you do that in practice becomes the next question. If I take Scania as an example, when we are now starting to build up the financial domain, we have then organized it in such a way that basically the recruitment and the setup of the sort of the data engineering resources, they're really driven from the central team. And, when, and we are sort of recruiting for the domain roles we are doing it together with the central team. And we even to the point want people to have worked in the central team. And then we take them, okay, we now pinpoint you to be an, a, a data domain guy working on data products. And then in this way, you're, you're more focused now on content. And then over time, you stay here. So what happens now is that we all know it together. And we have sort of, we have a vision together. It's not like I've been recruiting a domain team on my own without conferring with the central team. No, we, we cannot do that very close together. This is one angle. The second angle, instead of the domain team doing one thing and the central infra team is doing another thing, we are working towards the same goal and objective. So I take the example, we needed to build right now a, a data product to support regulatory reporting in Italy. Okay. Now, there will be source data products, you know, that is sort of contract data, customer data, and then it will be more concrete data sets to serve the, you know, the regulators in Italy. Concretely now what we are doing, we are taking some of the infra central team and they are very much part of us. You know, we are the first in some ways. So this is especially relevant for the first couple of teams. They are, they are working very close with us when we build these new first data products. But we have different objectives. Our objective is basically that we get to the content and we get to the report. The central guy's objective working together with, with, with our team, how do I suck that out and make it into a template? So we are working on it. So basically, they're helping us setting up the infra, the pipeline infrastructure as code with the purpose of being able to suck that out, make that into a scaffolding template for a typical data management problem and put that in GitLab. So basically now, in the beginning now, the central team and the domain team are working more or less together and just very, very close. And then, and then, okay, they will have a couple of other things in GitLab or CI/CD that we don't really care about, and we will have some, you know, data wrangling, data, you know, you know, understanding content of the data they don't care about. But there is a core where we meet in the middle, and I think this is super. This has been really successful, I think, when you're on the first, the first domain teams. That is actually, the, you know, we're the guinea pigs, right? So then we basically put those two teams together, more or less really, and, and, and we're not doing the full teams, but critical uh, solution architects, critical data engineers are sort of solving this stuff together. One has the angle of the business value and one has the angle of the template. But the template wasn't, we didn't create a template in theory. We used the use case to create the template. 
I think yeah. that way of thinking is quite good. It's thinking about what can we take from this that can be reused because we solved the challenge. And so not solving not solving the challenge in such a way that it's a one-off every single time. Like there are aspects of everything that's exactly one Exactly like that. And, and then in order to get there, the central team and the domain team in the beginning, they need to sort that out together because it will, you know, so, and, and therefore we don't take shortcuts. You know, you see what I mean? Like, and, and it, it, this is tricky because from a funding perspective, you need to be quite sort of, we're in it together. I put my money on this bucket and the central team puts their money and their resources, you know, and then we, we kind of, we're not nitpicking on every hour, every dollar, but more solving it. And I get my outcome, the central team get their outcome, we're all happy. Uh, so there's a lot of things going on now to make that work. It's it's how we look at our resources, our budgets. It's how we look at our common objectives, but also our different objectives and make that play together. And I found if you leave the real guys who can do this alone, you know, they have no problem with this. They have no problem sorting this out. Yeah, it's it's, it's kind of the English phrase of pennywise pound foolish, right? Of if you're not giving people the amount of uh, funding that they need to actually accomplish this in the right way, they'll still get to an accomplishment, but it's going to be so much more costly or have such a lower return, you know, probably both in the long run, yeah. right? If you, if you can do it right the first time, do it that way. Yeah. And, so, and, and, and here comes another key learning point. When you start off your first domain, you need to find the right players in that domain who has the experience around tech and who can be a sensible buyer. You know, so so when when I was hired into this, I was hired in from the point of view that I've been working always on the business domain side, but I have quite successfully managed to find that supply demand relationship with IT. So literally here, if I'm an asshole in the business and I push the central team too hard, you know, deadlines or cost or whatever, we will be forced to cut corners. And, and, and at the same time, if, if they're assholes and sort of just trying to, you know, see me as someone to screw for money, you know, their IT budget, you know, and they want to just give a hate the KPI, they won't, it won't fly either. So, you know, you, you need to be on, on, on a, such a, you need, need high level of trust and high level of that feeling we are sitting in the same boat we are really wanting this both of us and then then we can solve it and then basically we can have really honest discussions on what what take depth we want to take or not take the problem is when you don't have that kind of relationships and you're pushing the central it team too hard they will they will say oh, he's an asshole let's give him what he wants to so he shuts up and you know what he can have that shitty pipeline you know it's so Daniel Engberg had talked about this in his a little bit about um, like how do you get into conversations where it's a negotiation instead of a request? Because if they don't want to deal with you, they um, they absolutely will. You know, sometimes they'll say, "Okay, we'll just acquiesce to the request," and it's not really what what you wanted, or it'll be okay, I'm going to charge much more and I'm going to give them 100% of what they said, even though I could get to 
85% in a month for 20% of the cost. And so, I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of dealing with this. I'm, I'm trying to uh, move over to the Netherlands and I'm talking with our HR team. And, you know, I said, hey, here's kind of my ranked list of what I'm trying to, to accomplish. Like, here's the thing. And they thought that that was not a ranked list. They thought that was my list of demands. And so, you know, I, I kept kind of staying on top of them a little bit about, let's have the conversation, let's have the conversation. And finally getting into the actual conversation with them, you know, what had been taking a month and a half to progress, you know, 15% of the way in that one conversation, it freed them up to progress, you know, 60, 70% of the way in a week and a half span, because it's like, oh, okay, here's what we can play with. Like what, what, what's really necessary versus what's play with and building that that relationship is so crucial so that you can actually have high trust context sharing and it's not like well this is going to be pretty difficult if you really want it we can do it and that you go well you just said you can do it so you're going to do it for me right versus okay this is going to be difficult like i'm going to allocate more resources to you or i'm going to be okay with us pushing that off 6 months until we prove out the value or you know okay i'm going to push from our side and, and throw in more people to make sure it gets done in the right way. It's exactly what you're talking about, that trust angle. Yeah, but, yeah, but I, I think this, this, is, this is not simple, right? But, but I think it boils down to a couple of key fundamental behaviors that, that we need to take accountability for ourselves, uh, both in the domain side and, and, and on, on the IT side. And, and first of all, it, it starts with respect empathy and understanding for the different roles. So the problem we have a lot of times is that the buyers in the business, they don't really have an empathy for what goes into building something. So that's the problem when the buyer is too immature and they don't understand and realize the concept of the data pipelines, the layers. So, so you have the business guy saying, how hard can it be? You know, that, that is one problem, right? That, that, you know, that it starts with this, humbleness you know to listen to each other what goes into this the second you know empathy understand understanding and respect so you listen to each other the second part of this is basically you kind of need to invest with the key stakeholders or the key players a lot of time to build a relationship capital you know you, I, it over time i needed to have this conversation with sort of my uh, peers in IT, so to speak. So we kind of got to a common ground of what we wanted to achieve. And that is a lot about listening. It's about highlighting what do I need? What do I really need? And, you know, and what is my problem? What is my challenges? And then this is my angle. This is your angle. You know, what's the common ground? You know, and then basically I usually use the, the simple word, how can I put both these part parties in the same boat? As long as we are sitting and trying to row in different boats, we are not really talking about the same stuff. So we need to understand the boat is the same, but who's going to be in the front rowing, who's going to be in the back rowing, and who's going to be on the lookout. We all got work to do, but we're in the same boat. Um, so that's relationship and basically with the ultimate objective to create an atmosphere. We're in the same boat, and this is about sharing the same goals. Or having an overarching objective that breaks down to this is your key results, these are my key results, but they're all basically actually saying the same stuff. 
and 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 I think those things are very much human centric, you know, and building up your network within within an organization. So it also means you need to have curiosity. You know, I'm in, the, in my business domain. I have many colleagues who's working in the business. This is more very strong examples in Vattenfall, where it was clear to me, I came in in 2012, Vattenfall is the kind of place where people have been working, you know, one life job kind of thing. And the guys in sales, oh, we have we never got any good data, it's shit, blah, blah, blah. And then I realized none of the business guys have really made the effort to understand, well, how does our IT governance work? How do I get funding? How do I get a project? Who who, who is the architect I should involve? You know, so it's about then learning the process, even if it's a, a very stringent one or if it's more informal, you know, uh, you know, you know, but how are things done? How do you get things done? And then you really need to spend a lot of time in understanding. Well, they work in this way, and if I if I come to them in this way, they will have a problem working in that way. But if I give the same request but in this way, they can work with me. And and so, I don't know. I mean, like you you kind of need to have a common understanding, sitting rowing in the same boat, and trying to understand, like you know, how do we make these two things work together? And, and and in the end, spending a lot of time on, you know, so which seems crazy, right? Oh, my KPI is here. I should work in my business. I should talk to the business guys. But you need to realize that for me to work in this large enterprise, I need to understand my closest sort of interfaces and how they work. I don't know. I, I, it's not It's not a very, it's a fairly fundamental, basic human response, what I'm giving you now. But it's but sometimes we forget it in the world of tech. It, it's not sometimes; it's most of the times. Like the the number of the number of times that I'm talking to people who um, are successful in their data mesh implementations, it's not talking about the technology; it's talking about the conversations. It's talking about working together. You know, a, a lot of people talk about you know. Um, Software engineering is hard, but the easiest part of it is, I, I can't remember the exact pithy phrase, but the software engineering is hard, but the easiest part of it is actually coding, right? Like everything else around it is, is, is difficult. Well, well put. That's line of code, when you really figure out the problem you're going to solve and what is really needed, then it can be 10 lines of code, but it's to get to which one are the right 10 lines that is the key work. Yeah, you, you talk to successful people in, in data and, you know, like Danilo Sato at um, ThoughtWorks had, had said at the end of his episode was, please just talk to each other. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think that's that's good, Yeah, it's, uh, you know, and, and, and uh, unfortunately, we, we don't have the, the time to go into it too much. But I think, you know, you and I are, are both kind of circling around this thing of, stop trying to start from the technology, right? Start from the conversation, start from the, the, what are you trying to accomplish? It's okay to skip certain things. You don't have to build everything out ahead of time. It's okay to, to learn what you actually really need and then set yourself up for reuse. Don't skip when you're thinking about, you know, how, how would we make this into a repeatable process that's not just for this specific use case, but I, I think we're we're coming at it from a lot of the same uh, angles. I think it's it's the way you're going to be successful is do this with intentionality, and that you're in this for the long haul. Stop trying to go for. I mean, short term wins can be good to to drive momentum and learning, but stop 
going for the short term at the expense of the long term. Set yourself up to win in the long term. Yeah. Is, is, is that, I don't want to put those words in your mouth, but is that kind of no, how you think about it? I think, I think, I think they're quite spot on, but, but let, I want to take, I want to come to my, one of my pet, uh, you know, what I'm really working on trying to figure out, which I think is sort of linking to what you're saying, but here there, there is a fundamental huge, huge pink elephant in the room. And I, and I want to talk a little bit about that pink elephant because um, to succeed with data mesh, you kind of need to be in a, in a, in in a couple of there, there's some prerequisite context that needs to exist for this to have any chance to fly. And first of all, you need to have broken the barrier of you need to have gone on the journey so far. So you are talking about how can we do data and AI at scale, value creation at scale. So as long as you're sort of starting out and you're only caring about one siloed use case, that's fantastic. And you, you make that work and you get value out of that. But if you haven't really gone to the point where you're starting to look for other people's data and you want to get reusability, I mean, like data mesh for me goes very closely with, the uh, you know, if you, if you follow on LinkedIn, uh, Bill Schmarso, who talks a lot about the economics of data. I mean, like the context here is that a lot of the pink elephant here is that the the the, the nature of reusability in data that is a never depleted resource that basically can be reused at zero marginal cost for use case after use case after use case put a different mind on you know I'm not caring used I mean, like we, we care about our application, our application. Now we have a business problem, so I build a tool for that business problem. And then I'm super happy that I solved this in that tool. If you flip it and start thinking about, well, what's the data in all this? And how can we have data ownership? But more importantly, how can we have data shareability and data re reusability? You start understanding that your whole company is network, it's an ecosystem. And basically, everybody needs cost data but for different purposes. Everybody needs customer data, but for different purposes. So why are we now doing it over and over again? Well, we are coming from a business application-centric mindset, and now we need to go to a data-centric mindset. You know, the, the, that's, so that, that sort of fundamental maturity that you need to be on the conversation of how do I reuse? How do I scale up? And, you know, it's too, we can't get it done in this way. You kind of need to be there. This is on, not only the monolithic story, right, that we can't serve everyone, but it's the fundamental realization we want to reuse data. This is one. And when basically someone says the cost of reusing data is too high, we need to find somewhere else another way to reuse data. And, I, and I'm not only talking from a reporting warehousing point of view. I'm, I'm talking the, also about reusing data and the, and the conversions convergence, OLTP, OLAP, you know, operational use cases versus analytical use cases. But, so this is one sort of, you know, if you're not really thinking about at scale, are you really, you know, do you really need to care? You know, that, that's, that, that's number one. The second major pink elephant, I think, is that you need to be in a maturity where the business process people are starting to realize that if I own this process, I own the digital version of this process 
and I own the data, the analytical software perspective of this process, of, of this, you know. So we are talking about understanding that data AI software is an integral part of the core business. So what I'm saying now, you need to start going in a place where, you know, what is line management in business? Well, we, 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 we are dealing with this process, sales, but our sales has a lot of ones and zeros today because it's digital. So basically, I need to worry about my sales process down to ones and zeros. If that fundamental maturity around we are we are looking at data as an integral or algorithms as an integral part of core process. If you're not there, but you know, if you're in more of a space like, oh, it says data in this sentence, so it has to do with IT. So I flipped the question to IT. If the business is not in a place where they are realizing my FTE balance has to include engineering resources, you know, then you're not ready for this either. So, so I'm kind of coming from this where there's, there's even down to 2012, it was obvious that we were going to do our churn analytics. It was obvious that we we're going to do our pricing analytics, not, not IT, you know. But I think in many organizations, that's not really always that it has hit home with a business PL leader that when I look at my operations, I need to include data engineers and data scientists in my thinking is not necessarily you're not there we are not all there right if i look at scania if i look at from the most mature end of scania to the least mature end of scania we 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 are a cross section of society so we we have clear domains where data engineering data scientists is an integral part of core business they don't belong to it Okay. And then we have other parts of Scania where you have this traditional supply demand storyline and people are asking, you know, very flimsy, flimsy process questions. And then they, they think magically without talking to each other that the coder will know what to code. So the pink elephant here is about, you know, business understanding that tech is actually their problem as well. You know, part of, you know, the pipeline, you know, dimension. And the other one I mentioned is, is is basically, I forgot almost, but it's like, if you don't have that fundamental understanding for uh, for ownership and all that, uh, yeah. So there, there, there are some fundamental topics. And, and you know, and if you don't take talk about scale, so scale, if, if you're not really thinking about reusability across the enterprise, and if you're not really talking about and understanding engineering as part of the core business as well. So we, ha- we need, we all have tech. We simply do we do different tech roles in the central IT teams versus the tech role in the business. But the business has tech roles. If you if you're not there, th- those two things will be re- really hurtful in the conversations. You know, it, it will be a hard time struggling, and that's why with the innovators they get it. They're already there. Start with them. Show that, and then the laggards will kind of understand that I don't have a budget for engineering people in my in my business. Shit, I'm screwed. They need to. That revelation needs to come. I think yeah. those two things are sort of: Do we really talk about scale, and is the business ready to to manage and, and take ownership for engineering roles? There, there are sort of if they are kind of a prerequisite that that at least once when you start off, I'm not asking the whole enterprise to be there, but you need to have it. If you don't have that somewhere, and it's clearly understood, 
I mean, like, I need to have my own budget, right? I need to have my budget for my engineering guys. Simple as that. If I don't have a budget for it, it's not going to happen. Yeah. The domain-driven design um, for data episodes that we've had, pretty much everybody has said, your business context needs to be embedded in your code. And so if you don't have the ability of embedding your business context into your code, it, if your domain doesn't have the ability to get there, and it may be that you're not at a stage where your domain does have those engineering resources. And that's okay if you can build that bridge to get that into the code and that you'll evolve towards that, right? Like if you're in a small organization, 200, 300 people, like whatever, like that that stuff can get there, but but that's where you need to go in the long run. Yeah. So, well, but-, but Henry, the bottom, Sorry, the bottom line here, if I take Scott an example, Helena was mature. My sponsor was mature. She saw this. She didn't have any engineering manager type roles or someone who could lead this. So she hires me as an interim manager to start shaping that, recruiting that, you know, identifying the players within the organization who can take different roles. But it starts with Helena realizing this. And then secondly, someone who can shape it for her. Now, if those kind of things doesn't exist in, in any domain, you kind of need to solve that in your domain. You cannot only talk with the IT guys and start going. There needs to be shaping going on and change management or building this capability within the domain happening in each domain. Someone needs to do it. Someone needs to do that. You need to have that as, if you don't have it now, you need to have it as kind of. Yeah, that. and this is maybe then, okay, who's going to be your data, who's going to be your shaper of your domain? in terms of data mesh or data or, you know, and for me, it's not only data mesh is, you know, how we understand APIs, how we understand uh, self-service BI and reporting. So there are more things in our tech team than pure data product, you know, but we have a tech team now and we didn't have that uh, three years ago. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, Henrik, this has been awesome. Uh, we're sorry, we're, we're <laughs> over time and everything, but um, yeah. So uh, <laughs> if people want to follow up with you, what, where's the best place that they can reach you and, and what do you want them following up with you about it? Typically people say kind of LinkedIn or is that, is that the uh, best place? For me, LinkedIn is a great starting point. I think, you know, the, the more we can be a community and sharing on LinkedIn, and I really love having conversations. Uh, we have a couple of friends who are really, someone is posting something, sharing something, and then we comment. I think we learn a lot from each other like that. So I'm all in for anything from questions to requests for support or whatever. So I'm, I'm, I'm sort of, there. you know, hit me up on LinkedIn, whatever. I'm, I'm game. I'm game. I'll drop, I'll drop a link in the show notes to your exact uh, Henry name. Gothberg. You can so Henry Gothberg uh, on LinkedIn is quite, I think that's it. Yeah, I'll, I'll, and well, and the link will just be in the show notes so people can just even not even have to search. But um, so, yeah, this has been such a, a, a great uh, learning opportunity and, and I, I really appreciate the time. So thank you so much uh, for taking the time, Henrik, and thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you for having me, Scott. Really enjoyed it. I'd again like to thank my guest today, Henrik Gothberg, who's the founder and CEO at DareDocs the co-founder of the Airplane Alliance, and the chairman of the Data Innovation Summit. As per usual, you can find his contact information and other relevant links in the show notes. Thank you. As mentioned, this episode was part of the Data Innovation Summit Takeover Week of Data Mesh Radio. 
The Takeover Week featured three people presenting at the conference, sharing their insights related to their focus areas that are also useful to those implementing Data Mesh. I chose to promote the Data Innovation Summit as the HyperWrite team who is running the summit has been one of the best in terms of discussing Data Mesh in a practical way around a lot of their content. The summit takes place May 5th and 6th in Stockholm, Sweden and online. The Data Innovation Summit team has graciously offered up three free online attendance tickets, as well as one in-person ticket. Please see the show notes for information on how to enter your name to win free tickets and also to use the 20% discount code if you aren't one of the lucky ones who win. In-person tickets are about $465 after the discount code and online tickets are about $200. Hopefully that interview episode was really useful for you. Please do consider getting in touch with guests from the show, from these episodes. Most have said they'd really love people to reach out to them. And please, as well, if you've got a minute, rate and review the podcast somewhere. It really is honestly super helpful for other people looking into kind of data podcasts to kind of get this in front of them. Data Mesh Radio is again provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It's produced and hosted by me, Scott Herleman. In April of 2023, I left Datastacks, who were wonderful in getting the Data Mesh community stuff started, so give them a shout for streaming and real-time AI needs. But I left to start my own industry analyst kind of information-as-a-service firm. Our offerings are affordable, and you can do them on a one-off or a month-to-month basis. You know, read kind of, throw it on the credit card. Don't worry about, like, going through purchasing and things like that. The services include lots of practitioner roundtables, you know, one-on-one data mesh kind of planning or feedback sessions and tailored introductions to other data mesh practitioners that are focused around your topics of interest. You know, what, what are you actually running into challenges with? We also have some free programs around introductions and roundtables that people can kind of check out as well. Check the show notes or just go to datameshunderstanding.com for more info or helpful resources. As always, if you have suggestions for guests or topics, please do get in touch as well and have a wonderful rest of your day. Now let's hear that funky outro music.